since nickel is one of the most common elements in space in interplanetary dust particles or meteorites or comets. It's natural to think that if we have a surface with a very good catalyst, if an organic compound is coming along, it will attach to the surface and react with other organic compounds. And since nickel has been shown to be such an excellent catalyst, it could be also the driving element for polymerization of these organic compounds in space. So nickel might be one of the most important catalysts that are available in space. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Anna Neubeck, Associate Professor in Geochemistry at Uppsala University and the SCAS Fellow within the Natural Science Program in this academic year. And this is another episode in our theme, Life in Outer Space. This time we are looking at one of the building blocks of life, the chemical element nickel. If you have listened to our previous episode with Martin Salien, you might remember that nickel can be a product of a collapsing supernovae. If you haven't listened or don't remember, don't worry, we have the expert in the studio and we'll hear a lot more very soon. Welcome to SCAS Talks, Anna. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Thank you very much. My name is Anna Neubeck and I'm a geochemist and associate professor at the Department of Earth Sciences at Uppsala University. My research topic is biosignatures, roughly. I'm looking for signs of life in rocks, basically. So that's what I'm doing. And uh, my focus this year and uh, several years to come and previous years have been to look at nickel isotopes. Yes, and we will talk a lot more about that today. How did you get interested in this topic? Why is nickel so exciting to you? I got interested in the topic of life in rocks when I was a student at Stockholm University. And I took a course on biogeochemistry. And in that course, my teacher and then later on also my supervisor for my PhD talked about the enormous amount of life that uh, exists kilometers down below our feet. And I thought it was amazing, really fascinating. And he talked a lot about that this type of life is totally cut off from the surface life that we are used to. And uh, they are just living there and have been living there for millions of years, undisturbed. And uh, this was a fascinating topic. So when it was announced that it was a PhD announced, then I applied for this position and got it. And that was when I started doing these kind of research. And nickel is one of those special elements that are essential for life and that were essential for the earliest life on Earth. And in that sense... It becomes very interesting when you're looking for the first signals or first signatures of life on Earth. So that's my story why I became interested in nickel. Before we go into more details, we can just go through some terminology so that me and the listeners understand what uh, you're talking about. And since you mentioned biosignatures, we might as well start with that. What is a biosignature? Biosignature is defined as a measurable or any measurable phenomenon that indicates the presence of life. And it is different from another term called biomarker, because biomarker is, is initially a medical term that indicates some kind of biological state, for example, cancer or things like that. So we use biosignatures in astrochemistry to kind of deviate from the biomarker research that are mostly medical. So it's a sign of life and it can be living life or extinct life. So something has been around. Some life has been around at some time. And is that a cell or a molecule or how small can you go with the biosignature, so to say? You can even go down to elemental and isotopic scales 
It can be anything, basically. Everything from a skeleton, from a dinosaur. That's a very obvious sign of life. Down to isotopes that are not that obvious, but they can also distinguish between pure chemical reactions and living signatures. You also mentioned nickel isotopes. I guess that's connected now to the different kind of things you can find in a biosignature. So what about the different nickel isotopes? What are they and what do they do? Well, isotopes are two or more forms of the same element that contain equal numbers of protons, but different number of neutrons in the nuclei. And then these different types of elements have different masses. So... In general, different isotopes are the same element, but different masses. And certain processes are accumulating one of those more than the other. And then you can measure this very small mass difference between, well, certain types of processes. It can be a mineralization, for example. So then you can perhaps measure the, the isotopic signature in the mineral compared with the surrounding rock. And then you can sometimes see a difference in mass. And then you can measure that mass, if you're lucky, <laughs> and distinguish between different kind of processes. Yeah, you haven't mentioned it yet, but I know you probably will, because you did when we prepared for this podcast. Fractioning, what is that? And why is it important in your research? Fractionation of isotopes is defined as the relative partitioning of the heavier and lighter isotopes between two coexisting phases in natural systems. This means that a natural environment tends to have a general almost fixed ratio between the different isotopes of an element. And during fractionation, one type of isotopes is accumulated into a specific phase so that it deviates from the natural general occurrence. And an example of this is the accumulation of light nickel isotopes in cells, for example, compared with the surrounding environments that this cell is living in. And so if one analyzes a bunch of bacteria for nickel isotopes, one will notice that it has more of the lighter nickel isotopes in some of the cells compared with the lake water, for example, where it lives in. And then you can say that a fractionation process has occurred. This process is called fractionation of nickel because it is a separation of these two different isotopes with different masses. And it can be used for all kinds of processes. And it's used very frequently in geochemistry, but also in other disciplines. And for example, some of these isotopes are very, very sensitive to temperature changes. So oxygen isotopes are for example, are used to determine temperatures. So you have a different fractionation of isotopes in the warm tropical regions compared with the isotopic composition of oxygen in Sweden, for example. So it can be used to trace all kinds of processes, and I'm tracing biological processes with isotopes. Sounds like real detective work with all these little clues that you get. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. The work. You're working on a book about the beginnings of life on Earth from a geochemical and biochemical standpoint. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What is this book about? It's a, a Springer book about the prebiotic chemistry and origin of life. And it is a compilation of the latest research about the start of life until the multicellular life on Earth. So from space life to Earth life, basically. So we are combining a lot of different disciplines that have each produced one chapter to describe the beginning of life if it happened in space or if it happened on Earth. And then the development of the first cells or the first signatures of life, first organic compounds, and to the multicellular life and the kind of life that we can see in the fossil geological rock record and that we can definitely say that these are fossilized former life forms. So we are covering uh, approximately two billion years in this book. And we have researchers from theoretical organic chemistry, theoretical physics, astronomy, molecular biology, 
biology, paleontology, geochemistry, mineralogy, and virology together. So it's a truly interdisciplinary work, at least within the natural sciences. We have also included a chapter on viruses that has been overlooked quite a bit for quite uh, some time. But in this book, we are also looking into if viruses could have been the first life that formed on Earth. So that's uh, pretty exciting, I think. That's always an interesting discussion if viruses are life or not. Yes, it might be the transition from chemistry to life. Or maybe it is life. We don't know yet. Because viruses need a host cell to replicate. So then some people argue that, well, that's not life. And they don't have this complete DNA system. So it's interesting. Very fascinating just have the minimal requirements to somehow reproduce themselves, but not by themselves. But that's maybe a sidetrack. But nowadays, viruses are on everybody's minds. So Yeah, nowadays, it's really common to think about viruses. That's true. But anyway, back to your book. I got the privilege to read the preface. And in the preface, you write, we've already touched upon this. If the origin of life cannot be observed, perhaps it can be reconstructed through painstaking interdisciplinary detective work. And the interdisciplinary detective work sounds, of course, like a perfect topic for this podcast. We already mentioned it a little bit, or you mentioned a little bit, the different disciplines that come together. How does the detective work look like? What do you want to find? If we start with the book, then it's just to try to understand what was the major process for the start of life or the tipping point process that started life in the first place. And do we need all the right conditions, temperature, chemistry, radiation, pH or catalyst, etc., for life to start? Or is it just a natural consequence of an environment such as the early Earth, for example? Is plate tectonics necessary for life to start, for example? If it is, then we won't find any life in this solar system because Earth is the only known planet to have plate tectonics. So this book is, in a way detective work, so to speak, that we are trying to figure out what are the most important processes to start life? What is necessary for starting life? Is this just habitability or do we need to have anything more? And will life inevitably start if it's warm enough and water is available together with a few more chemical compounds? And we discussed the different aspects of life and tried to show how extremely, extremely broad life is if you look at it now. And what I mean by that is that there are so many chemical reactions that took place and uh, competed with each other and that eventually led to the beginning of something self-sustaining that could evolve. And many of those chemical reactions are just lucky to have been preserved in our current life. For example, this photosynthetic enzyme called Rubisco that is very, very inefficient but it has just been preserved because it was the best enzyme at the time. And then life evolved so much that it couldn't get rid of this Rubisco anymore. So that also tells us the story that chemical reactions are happening all the time and they're kind of competing with each other all the time. It's just the right conditions that makes it win or not win. And another example could be oil and gas formation. Oil is produced by the decomposition of organic matter if you add temperature and pressure. And if you just switch a little bit the temperature and pressure, it becomes gas, natural gas instead. So it's a competition between oil and gas where the surrounding environment is the one that decides who wins. And this is happening all the time, also with all kinds of chemicals now and when life started on Earth. So the detective work is to find what are the major catalysts that really drives one reaction to win over another one, or what are the conditions, what are the pHs necessary, or to look at it from the the other side or the other way around. Can we see any signs in the ancient DNA that we have to kind of, in that way, get an idea on what kind of environment that was prevailing in the early Earth. 
So this is the detective work that we are trying to do in this book, bringing all these recent knowledge about these topics together. Fascinating. A lot of different elements that have to come together to sort of give you the whole picture. Yes. But then let's turn away a little bit from the big picture and go into details. So let's go to your own research. How can Nickel tell us more about life in outer space? Or shall we start on Earth? We can start in space. Nickel is very common, both in space and on Earth. And it is very a very famous catalyst in the industry for producing organic compounds. So it's used frequently to produce long-chain organic compounds. So naturally, when doing these kind of reactions in the industry, one starts to think, is that maybe also possible on on an early Earth or even out in space. So since nickel is one of the most common elements in space in interplanetary dust particles or meteorites or comets, it's natural to think that if we have a surface with a very good catalyst, if an organic compound is coming along, it will attach to this surface and react with other organic compounds. And since nickel has been shown to be such a excellent catalyst, it could be also the driving element for polymerization of these organic compounds in space. So nickel might be one of the most important catalysts that are available in space for producing essential compounds such as peptides, for example. So we are looking both into nickel chemistry in this very harsh environment of high radiation and almost vacuum and very cold environments and with very few molecules that can react. And then we are also looking into the idea that perhaps you have a surface in space where you have this polymerization of organic compounds on the surface. And this might be a meteorite that falls onto Earth in a very warm and nice environment with a lot of water and a very habitable environment. And the nickel catalyst will still continue to catalyze further reactions. And so that could also be the tipping point for producing even more complex molecules when it has been delivered to Earth. So that's what we are looking at. And that can be called a bottom-up approach where we are looking for the simple, very simple molecules that combine together into very important molecules for life. But we are also looking through the genes and looking through the more and more ancient genes to find these type of genes that are coding for nickel-bearing enzymes. And we have found, as many others have found, that nickel is very, very early on seems to be one of the most important enzymes for the earliest life on Earth. So it seems to be a very primitive and very early and necessary element in most of the earliest metabolic processes on Earth. And to try to combine these two processes also, or two disciplines, is also one of these interesting things. So Imagine if you have this soup with nickel and organic compounds, and then you have the genes that are pointing to a very early metabolism. When do we see the shift going from just catalytic reactions that are happening by itself into something that can be called life? And the difficult part with this is maybe not so much to produce these kind of reactions in the lab, but to actually say what is life or not. I would say we cannot even decide if a virus is life, for example. So that might be the hardest part to have a consensus on what life actually is. But you always hear this discussion about the the soup where everything is boiling a little bit or not boiling, I don't know, but where things come together and then some magic happens. Is that how how you also picture it? Well, I might picture it as some kind of liquid, probably water that are moderately warm and that you have a lot of minerals that are catalyzing all kinds of reactions in this water pond or whatever. And that some of these reactions become very successful and continue to produce other reactions that 
in the long run maybe produces something like a primitive metabolic process or something like that. I picture it, but I mean, it could be in either way. But since if we look into the bottom of the sea where we have these volcanoes coming out, it's really a rich soup of metals and organic compounds and gases and everything. And you actually can study these processes directly in situ where you have rich environment just on the surface of these chimneys that are spewing out gases and and lava and organic compounds. And it is really concentrated. Uh, there are so many things and reactions that are happening there. And even amino acids are produced in these kind of systems. So that could also be some of the most important places to look for the beginning of life, I would say. So a place where you can find the building blocks. Yes. So what are you looking for in your research? I'm focusing mostly on finding a method to actually be able to measure nickel isotopes in these very, very small fossils. Because commonly you take a fossil and you grind it down to a powder and then you dissolve everything and you measure it in a mass spectrometer. And if you have a very rare sample, you don't want to grind it down and dissolve it. You want to be very careful and you want to know also what you are measuring and you want to see where you have been measuring. So I'm looking into a method where we use laser to ionize just a small portion of the sample. So you can look at the sample with a microscope before and then you hit it with a laser. And then you can look afterwards exactly where you have taken your small samples. And that's very, very helpful if you want to know exactly what the signal tells you. So that's what I'm mostly doing to trying to develop methods and analytical techniques. Or I'm not doing the development. I'm working together with people that are developing techniques to tell them where to analyze and uh, what is reasonable numbers to get because of course we can measure a lot of nickel isotopes we have done that several times the problem is that we need to know that we are actually measuring the nickel isotopes that we are getting from the fossil and not from anywhere else and that the machine is not fractionating this nickel isotopes so one of the most time-consuming part of this method development is actually to find standards and reference material and to measure those first because the biggest problems when using these laser technique is that the laser itself or the machine itself fractionates nickel so the signal you get out you have no idea if that is a real signal from the fossil or if it's just the machine that has gone nuts so you have to have these confirmation all the time with standards and reference material with known nickel isotopic composition and you have to do so many analysis to really confirm that you are right, your numbers are right. And at the moment, there are just one standard available for nickel isotopes for laser ablation. So I'm also developing new standards, which is very time-consuming work to do. But it's really necessary if I want to trust my numbers that we have already gotten. What have you found so far in your in your research? We have taken a drill core from the deep ocean floor. So then you drill down. In this case, I think it's something like 100 meters down and you take up a piece of rock and you cut it down to thin slices and then you look for fossils. So you look for morphologies that are similar to life. And then you analyze them chemically and see if they are life or not. So we have found these weird structures that looks like shrubs and that has not been really... Well, some of these shrub-like morphologies have been said to be formed only by life processes. So we have found these structures and they are mostly composed of manganese and nickel and organic matter. So we have looked at those and tried to analyze the nickel isotopic composition of those shrubs to say if they are made from life or not by looking at the isotopic composition. 
And then we have looked at the carbon isotopic composition because the method of using carbon isotopes is much more developed and it's used a lot. And it's just a confirmation if this is a life process or not. So we have analyzed the carbon isotopes and the nickel isotopes of these shrubs and found that it has a very clear life signal which tells us that these small shrub-like structures in the deep sea is actually life, fossilized life that are several millions of years, hundreds of millions of years old, which tells us a lot of things. It tells us that these structures are made by life forms, and it also tells us that carbon isotopes and nickel isotopes are preserved through time, which is a very important result because... Sometimes you can produce a fresh signature, a fractionation signature, and then it kind of ages so that the signature is fading out slowly, and then nothing is preserved in the end. And then it's no meaning to look for these kind of signatures in very old rocks because the signatures has aged away. But this seems... At least right now, these are preliminary results, but it seems like nickel isotopes are actually preserved, at least for a few hundred million years, which is a good <laughs> sign for me. So that are some of the results we have gotten so far. Anything unexpected that you have found that you thought like, well, this was really not really on my mind? or Yes, yes, we have recently... I had a master student and she was looking into the nickel bearing genes or nickel coding genes. And we were mostly just looking for the old genes so that we could kind of confirm that nickel enzymes are very old and to confirm that all nickel enzymes are very old, almost at least. And then we also found that some of these nickel enzymes were found in organisms that shouldn't use nickel. We didn't know why do they use this enzyme for this process because we don't know that it's doing this process. So we looked into this a little bit further and could see that it seems like some of the nickel enzymes are used to produce shells and uh, to produce biocarbonates like biomineralization. And if this is true, nickel seems to be very, very important also for the global carbon cycling and the, the production of carbonate like shells and skeletons and teeth and these kind of things. And this was very, very unexpected for us because nickel is mostly used in anaerobic systems for small unicellular organisms that produce methane, for example. So this was very unexpected that nickel might be also used for biomineralization of carbonates. But it's ongoing work, so we have to confirm it. But so far we have collected a lot of new data that points to the same direction. So it's very exciting, I think. Do we have it, humans, these this genes? No, not uh, in ourselves, but we carry along organisms that use nickel. And for example, one of those bacteria that cause ulcer is using a lot of nickel to produce conditions that are just right for it in our stomach and causes this stomach bleeding. But directly, we don't use these nickel enzymes as humans. Mm, it's always interesting to look along evolution, like where, where does it start and when does it stop sort of to be important for different organisms. Well, you said you work quite a lot with the method, with the methodology to sort of optimize it and try to find good ways to, to work, mm -hmm. to do your research. Um, what would you wish for? What would you really need to go on and carry out your experiments? <laughs> well, first of all, I would wish that I could enter the labs again <laughs> because it has been closed for so long and it's really frustrating. One of the only places that I can use these methods is in Potsdam in Germany. And I haven't been able to visit Germany for, well, since Corona started. So that's a bit frustrating. But 
After that, I would like to optimize the laser. That would be one of the things that would be most important, I think, at, at the moment. Because first of all, you have to use a laser that are pulsating very, very, very fast. Because if it gives these slow pulses, it will heat up the sample and the sample will fractionate nickel just by the heat. So you have to have a laser that is pulsating with a very, very high rate. So it's called a femtosecond laser. So it's pulsating with 10 to the minus 15 times per second, which is super, super fast. But with these pulses, it's so fascinating because if you use just a little bit slower laser, nanosecond laser, then this is still enough time even though it's a nanosecond between the laser pulses, it's still enough for the heat to develop in the sample and melt the sample. Whereas if you have a femtosecond laser, the heat is so quickly applied that it cannot travel through the the material. So the material is totally cold, but it's still ionized, which is, in my opinion, super fascinating. So that is one of the things that needs to be optimized. It is a femtosecond at the moment, but we have to optimize the pulses so that it's perfect. Another thing that we have to do is, that I've told you before, is to measure different kind of standards and reference material, because these samples that we are analyzing are fossils embedded in carbonates, but the standards are mostly silicates. And if you use laser ablation, that it's called, on a silicate, the silica will behave differently than if you laser ablate a carbonate. And these different behaviors are also influencing the fractionation of any material or any element that you want to to look at. So that will be some of the most important work we have to do to look at what happens when we are just applying those lasers on carbonates in general. How big is the area that you actually hit with the laser? And does that play a role also? Yeah, that plays a role. In theory, the area is five micrometer, but the crater of the laser is, I mean, practically it is almost 10 micrometer. So it's still not possible to measure single cells that are mostly one micron in size. You can measure it, but it's going to be very hard to distinguish these signals from the surrounding signals. But if you have these brush structures, these are almost 100 microns big. So these craters that you create with the laser is small enough to actually hit the fossil. Any other challenges that you have there in the, in the technical department, so to say, in the techniques? We are measuring mass differences between two of the isotopes of nickel. And one of these masses are very similar to one of the isotope masses from iron. And iron is a very common element that are mostly included in most fossils, actually. So that is a challenge to be able to distinguish between the nickel and the iron masses of these isotopes. So that is a very big challenge. And at the moment, we're thinking about not measuring that specific (laughs) isotope, but instead looking at other nickel isotopes just to get rid of this overlapping masses from iron. You mentioned that you've been looking at material from the bottom of the ocean or underneath. Any other interesting material, maybe something from space that you have been working with? I have a few meteorites that I would like to measure when we have really figured out everything that is necessary for doing very good measurements. So I hope, of course, to be able to measure meteorites as well. But I'm mostly interested in looking at very, very old samples from Earth, I must say. So to try to find the first life forms on Earth, that would be fascinating, I think. And we have such rocks in Sweden, for example. We have these very, very old rocks that you could look at. And that would also be fascinating to find one of the earliest life forms in Sweden. 
that's unexpected. Usually it's in exotic places like Australia or Canada or something. I just have to ask this. So you find like the earliest life on Earth or very, very early life? Well, then once you know what has happened on Earth, what does that tell you about life in outer space? Well, if we find the first life, I mean, if we are sure that this is the life, the first life on Earth, then we know what to look for because now we don't really know what to look for. If we believe that the life we might find in space is very similar to life on Earth, then at least we have one structure, one chemical signature that we can look for in space and we know what kind of instruments we should send and what kind of materials we should look at and that would help a lot because now we are guessing quite a lot. We know that life needs water so we are looking for minerals that need water to, to form for example. So now with this Mars rover that has landed on Mars, this new one, Then they decided that this rover is going to land on a place on Mars that is definitely sure that water has flown on this place. So it's an old delta because we guess that the most probable place to find life is a place where water has been floating. But if we find the earliest life here, we can also target mineralogy and other kinds of factors. That would help a lot, I think. So it's really making educated guesses and then seeing whether, if it's right or not, and then taking mm. the next step. Or <laughs> yes, yes, I think so. Yeah. So let's assume then that you you find very early life on on Earth. You find clue, more clues about that in your detective work, and then you find something similar on Mars or some other place somewhere out in space then what happens then if you find that? Yeah, what happens then? I think it will just generate 10 more questions for each answer, I would say. If we find life on Mars, you want to know if this life was similar to the first life on Earth. And if it's not, that would generate a whole new research area on how life starts and what life is and what is necessary. And if we detect life on Mars that is not similar to the life on Earth, it will, of course, raise the question that maybe life is very common. It will happen anywhere there where you have water, for example. And it can take any shapes and forms. It can look like anything, basically. And that would be something I think would develop if we find life that is not similar to Earth life. And if it's similar, it would generate questions about DNA. And maybe DNA is very important for all life or in the entire universe. And then maybe in a philosophical way, we might think that life is much more of a lucky coincidence if DNA, which is a very complex molecule, needs to be there in order to produce life. I think it would just generate much, much more questions. But it will answer some questions as well. I mean, good research is like that, right? You get an answer and new questions, <laughs> more to do. You're waiting for the labs to open. What happens then? <laughs> Book ticket to Berlin and Potsdam. Yes, yes, I will go to Potsdam immediately, yes, to do my measurements, yes. So that's what I'm waiting for. But in the meantime, I'm doing other nickel isotopic work because there's not much done on nickel isotopes. So you can measure almost anything and it hasn't been done before. So I'm also looking at nickel isotopic composition of different kind of rocks and publish that. So it's part of the database of nickel isotopes because one of the questions are, of course, If we find a nickel isotopic signature that seems to be life, then you want to know. But maybe there's another non-biological process that can also can produce these kind of signatures. So you have to go through all these other possibilities to produce the same signature. So that's what I'm doing in the meantime, when I'm waiting for the labs to open in Potsdam.
And you recently also got funding for a large European project within the framework of Horizon 2020. What is that about? Can you talk a little bit about this? It's also about microorganisms living on rocks, but it's from an environmental perspective. So we are, I think, five universities in Sweden, Germany, the Netherlands and Belgium that are working together to find an optimal way of consuming or withdrawing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere by using weathering. Because if you are weathering silicate minerals, it will tend to decrease the carbon dioxide. So if we can increase weathering rate of silicates, then you can increase also the binding of carbon dioxide. So this uh, project, it's funded to produce a huge bioreactor where we mix all kinds of organic compounds, all kinds of minerals and fungi and bacteria and worms, soil worms. And we're going just to test which one of these experiments are best at withdrawing carbon dioxide. The first two years, we're going to set up a several thousands of small experiments and we're just going to monitor the carbon dioxide and nothing else and these carbon dioxide monitoring will go to machine learning system that will monitor continuously for well two years of these different experiments and then trying to learn which variables are optimal for withdrawing carbon dioxide and then in the end we're going to combine all these miniature experiments into a huge bioreactor to see if this is working as good as the small experiments and then the end hopefully will be some kind of soil mixed soil that you can spread on contaminated earth or contaminated ground to increase silicate weathering and to bind carbon dioxide, for example. Or it could be used in the industry. But it's a project that is funded from the special part of the Horizon 2020, which is called FET Open, which is a funding that is given to really extreme ideas. They do not need to be successful. Mostly when you apply for big funding, you have to have preliminary results and you have to have a plan for what kind of results you are going to produce. But within the FET Open, they are just funding crazy ideas, basically, and untested ideas. So we got funded for this, which is very fun because everyone is very new in these kind of research. So none of us have done these huge projects before. So it's going to be very fun to just try out everything that comes in mind and let the machine learning system crunch the data and give us some answers, hopefully. So it's high risk, high gain. Really. Yes, yes. Mm, sounds fun. We will have to meet again and follow up on this particular project. I would really like to know the outcome there. So when I prepared for this podcast, I was looking on your website and I saw a little note about the coming art exhibition here at SCAS. What is that about? I'm curious. Yes, it has been postponed due to the corona, but it's probably going to be done in the autumn. And it's about visualization. So if you think about scientists, at least in the natural sciences, we are looking at things that need to be visualized in order to be understood. And the same thing is happening with artists, only that they visualize something that they have within thoughts and feelings and and these kind of things. And this was a way to exhibit visualization of ideas and to have that discussion about visualization. To be able to see things, I think that's really important. I mean, that's what all the microscopes and everything is about. And seeing is believing in a way also. It is. And it's a very common tool used in, in science. But I think the coupling between science and art is fascinating. Because I somehow think it's the same thing. You have these ideas and you have the world within, so to speak, that you have to somehow communicate 
in a visual way or in some way. Sometimes you can use music or illustrations or whatever, but this communication is essential for both of those, both artists and uh, scientists. That's at least what uh, this art exhibition is going to discuss. So that's also one thing to look forward to, and that will be here at SCAS once it happens. Yes, once it happens, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about SCAS and this environment that we have here. You're a scholar here now. What is your experience of being a natural scientist among scholars from a lot of other disciplines? Yeah, it has been very fascinating. I've learned a lot. I didn't know that you could even do research on certain topics and it has been really enlightening in my perspective. I have learned so much, but not only topic-wise, I've also learned about how to discuss and how to ask questions and seminars are very different in natural sciences compared to social sciences, for example. And that's fascinating And just one thing that if people are asking questions, usually the question takes several minutes to say, but in natural sciences, it's just one question. How did you do that measurement or something like that? How can you know that this is true? So that has been very fascinating to even follow the questions. Super intriguing, in my opinion. And then the discussions are much more vivid than in natural sciences seminars. In natural sciences, you just analyze how accurate is this measurement? How sure can you be of this? And how did you actually do this? And have you thought about blah, blah, blah? But here is much more about also philosophical aspects and ideas. You're actually exchanging ideas during these seminars, which is usually not happening so much, at least in natural sciences seminar series. So I think it has been a fascinating experience. Have you had any new ideas or food for thought for your own purposes, so to say? Yeah, a lot of ideas have popped up. I don't know if they can be you know, somehow realized, but I've started to discuss with some of these researchers here at SCAS as well for possible common projects. But it's a challenge to come up with something that is valuable to both so to speak. And then, I mean, now I've gained all these new insights, how you can work in a different way in your, uh, in your academic work. How will you implement this in the future of your own work when you go back to your normal <laughs> department and work with your other co-workers and so on? Yeah, I would like to have more seminar series that are similar to those here at SCAS that you actually have You have discussions afterwards. I don't know, it's just hard to get natural scientists to actually talk so much. So I have been thinking of giving them small tasks or small questions to discuss afterwards because it's really, it really gives another perspective to things if you're discussing it thoroughly and giving your ideas and knowledge to each other. So I hope to implement that somehow with seminar series. I've already talked to some of the people at our department and they are very positive to this. It's just hard to get people engaged. You have to give it a try and let it take some time, I guess. We can maybe close by talking a little bit about the natural science program here at SCAS. You're a part of that and how's that program here in this environment It's a bit hard to say because of the corona, so it hasn't been so much interactions, perhaps. But we all have offices beside each other, so we're talking a lot. We're knocking on each other's doors and speaking to each other all the time. So in a sense, that's also important to have very close to your colleague and common interests and time to discuss. Because I have thought, for example, I knew both David Dunier and Martin Salén before. And I've thought about talking to them, but I have never contacted them until now. And now we have a lot of crazy ideas that we are discussing all the time. That has been a very interesting experience as well.
Thank you very much for being on Scouse Talks and talking to me and of course to our listeners about your research. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Scouse Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the third and final episode in the theme Life in Outer Space, and I have talked to Anna Neubeck, Associate Professor in Geochemistry at Uppsala University and a SCAS Fellow within the Natural Science Program in this academic year. Previously, in episodes 17 and 19, we have heard more about cosmic origins, life on exoplanets and the search for habitable worlds in outer space from Martin Salien and Nikolai Piskunov. Listen to those episodes as well if you're interested in this topic. Or maybe you want to know more about studies on the brain, languages, diversity or global governance. The variety of the topics and scholars featured in SCAS Talks is a direct reflection of the multidisciplinary environment at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. And we hope that you find something of interest for you. Next time we travel to Africa again and listen to Rebecca Lee, who will tell us more about her research on death and memory in modern southern Africa. We hope that you want to join us then as well. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. You can also give us a rating or leave a review. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Anna Neubeck once again for joining SCAS Talks. And of course you for listening. Bye for now.